Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. I'm really excited about today's guest. I'm joined on The Deep Dive by Mina Salami, who's the author of the internationally acclaimed book, Sensuous Knowledge, A Black Feminist Approach for Everyone. The book has been translated into five languages and has been called Intellectual Soul Food. Mina has written for The Guardian, Al Jazeera, El Pais, and she's a columnist for Esperanto Magazine. She's co-director of the feminist movement Activate, and a senior research associate at Perspectiva. She sits on the advisory board of the African Feminist Initiative at Pennsylvania State University, or as we like to call it, Penn State. And I'm really excited to have Mina here to talk about all of her work. So thanks for being on the deep dive. Thank you, Philip. I'm really excited to be here as well. As I was going through the book, you cover quite a few ideas. And I looked at it as almost a work that you can jump into it at any point, but I found it most impactful to kind of do the traditional, read it from cover to cover, um, which is what I did. And you let off the book with a couple of analogies that I thought were fairly telling. So I thought it would make sense for us to kind of go through some of those metaphors, some of those allegories. And you start off with this analogy about a mountain. And it really connected to these ideas of things that are hidden and invisible in the normative way in which we think about things. So I want to give you an opportunity to kind of walk through that analogy and why you thought it was important to start there as you started to discuss the book. Thank you. That's a really good starting point, actually. And it was very helpful for me in, when I was writing the book to really use this metaphor of a mountain in order to do Firstly, the thing that you allude to, which is to write the book in a way that you can jump in at any point. I almost thought of it as writing a kind of bedtime stories book for adults that was political, philosophical, and social nature. And so I start anyway with this story about an explorer who hears this legend about a mountain that has vast riches that could make his town really wealthy. And so he goes off searching for this mountain and he's gone for months and when he comes back he has the sad news to deliver to everyone that he found the mountain but that unfortunately it was arid and so everybody forgets about the mountain and the legend except for this one person and who eventually goes in search for the mountain as well and then she comes back a few months later and says that oh I found the mountain and actually it's really lush and it's full of vegetable area and plants and this and that, and we are going to become really wealthy. And the point of the story, which I'm telling very briefly here, is to show that, you know, there's many different sides to a story and also to sort of position myself as the second explorer in the book that the reader is about to embark on. And my role as the second explorer is working in the world of ideas But as a woman and as a person of Black African heritage, I view the mountain 
from a different perspective than the world of ideas is typically viewed from, which is a world which I call with a Europatriarchal bias. So it's uh, Eurocentric and patriarchal. And we're going to spend a lot of time on the the idea of Europatriarchal reality. That's later on in my notes. But I'm glad that the term did come up because I want to actually parse the term because you spend time breaking it out from other adjoining systems like capitalism, misogyny, racism, so on and so on, all the isms and ist. But you do make distinctions there. So I do want to spend time with that. Before we get there, I want to spend a little bit more time with that analogy and the way in which the book begins, because in that role as the second explorer, it sounded to me a lot that this is a a journey that is very nurturing and very much like planting a seed, which really reminded me of Octavia Butler's work and many others, but specifically with her Parable of a Sower and, and those have kind of found new audiences in this moment. So I wonder how intentional that was on your part to act more as guide in a way rather than lecturer, for lack of a better word. It was deeply intentional, I would say. So in my role as a writer, I see myself always as being in conversation with the reader. I'm not interested in being a kind of didactic lecturer, you know, where we're all on this planet in a kind of joint journey. And so I see myself as exploring together. And it was important for me to convey that. At the same time, I, as a public intellectual, somebody who spends the most of my time doing a lot of research and reading up on things that most people don't have the time to read up on because they have other jobs that they've chosen um, or have to do. It is also my role as a writer to, to share that knowledge that I've gained. So there is an element of being a guide who comes with specific insights. I also tend to feel when I'm writing that I'm perhaps another profession that I feel a close relation to is that of an archaeologist almost, as though in the same way that an archaeologist would be digging through caves and tunnels to excavate some items, original position or something like that. I am excavating lies and myths and narratives and imaginaries that have obscured something that I perceive or that I am inclined to believe might be more truthful. And I'm inviting readers to join me on this journey of excavation, if you like. And in order to do that, the tone of my work needs to really both evoke a sense of companionship, of camaraderie with the reader, but also a sense of, how should I put it, a kind of no-nonsense attitude toward seeking a truth. So that's really, I guess, the deeper purpose or the deeper answer to your question. But if to summarize, or if I were to put it in in a nutshell of sorts, and it has to do very much with this question of, of truth. If you want to see the truth of something, you have to look at it from as many sides as possible. And so this metaphor of the mountain was really useful and intentional on my part in saying that, you know, whoever you are, whatever your background, your race, your ethnicity, your gender, your religion, this or that, If you are interested in truth of something and the topics that I'm interested in, the truth of in my book are things like, you know, identity and womanhood and race and so on, then you have to look at them 
from multiple angles and not just from the lens that is most automatic to you. And to a certain extent, a lot of that automatic lens is the default of whiteness. It is the default of this, um, what you call the Euro patriarchal knowledge base that we stem from. And we're getting closer to kind of breaking that down. But I think also how we think about knowledge in and of itself, this push and pull or, or seeming push and pull between what, you know, the intellectual knowledge, which is mind-based, tends to be focused on what is logical and rational, air quotes around all these words, and then the emotional, which comes from the gut or something that is people consider intuition. And one set of knowledge is considered more relevant or more meaningful than the other. And I want to talk about expanding that idea of what knowledge is, even as you go through looking for these truths in these very difficult areas. Yeah, I want to expand the idea of what knowledge is too. That's the motivation in writing sensuous knowledge. And certainly reason and rational thinking has a seminal role to play in knowledge. Thank God for it. (laughs) But that kind of thought process, uh, you know, rational thought, scientific thought, it probably isn't the best form of epistemology if we are interested in understanding, how should I put it, a kind of inner empiricism, like our interiorities and consciousness even, even though it, of course, you know, science has concerned itself very much with the question of consciousness and the mind-body problem. But um, in terms of that, like, interiority, science cannot explain our raw feelings in ways that things like the arts, meditation, embodied practices, and communing with nature and with others probably can explain those things. And so I guess so much of the argument in sensuous knowledge and whichever part of the argument that is critiquing and contesting this purely reason-focused binary way of thinking is rooted in my experience and the way that you know my, my experiences have been shaped by all of these different domains, by the interior, by the emotional, by the arts. And I know that this is true for everyone, but you know, I I guess I'm especially bothered that I have to live in a society where I'm sort of forced to choose between what we could call the political, so analysis, theory, facts, statistics, and then what we might call the aesthetics, so the arts and beauty and, and language and things like that. And so, yes, I exist in the world as a whole and a holistic and an embodied person, an entity. And I enjoy when I encounter other people who exist in the world that way. And I believe that our social structures should take into account that this is how human beings conduct their lives, whether they're aware of it or not. I was also very intrigued and concerned and bothered with how Despite all of this, despite this sort of holistical, embodied way that we live in our worlds, our political and economic structures are not formed along those lines. And the question that I wanted to put my finger on, that I wanted an answer to as I was exploring sensuous knowledge, was why is it that the dominant education, the dominant worldview still is so much 
focused on the, the mechanical, the machine-like, and on turning humanity into the mechanical and the machine-like more. And of course, that unfolded stories of power and exploitation. So that's the kind of the setup for the book and the contrast between Europatriarchal knowledge and sensuous knowledge. And that metaphor of mechanics and people as machines back in the day, it used to be man as machine, right? We have all of those sort of Renaissance and Enlightenment type of language and imagery that creates human beings, but mostly solely focused on men in this idea of the cosmos as a ordered system with the earth in the center and all of those kind of things. So metaphors have been incredibly powerful in, in terms of how we order society and in a world obsessed with data it's continued to have these sort of our brains as processing units and how do we multitask and break things down. So I really appreciate the way in which this is entered as a counter to that those prevailing notions. And it sounds like, and you reference this in the book, this idea of kind of navigating an either-or society, something you alluded to, even your response, we're more in a within-within, which tends to bring us to an idea of more of a flow. And how does that track with this the title of the book was very intentional, right? Sensuous knowledge, which you differentiate from sensual, right? So I want to give you an opportunity to break that down a little bit in relation to these ideas of counteracting that mechanical. Yeah. I mean, to start with counteracting the mechanical, the things that I find so restorative in my favorite literature is when I feel that I am seen, I am heard, my experiences are spoken of as valid. And that is something that, this is a book that is really, as the subtitle says, it's a Black feminist approach. And it's depicting the worlds where a lot of Black women find their language in, whether it's the language of hope and utopia or the language of resistance and protest. But yes, so the word sensuous is different to the word sensual. And I kind of intentionally distinguish between the two of them in the book, even while I'm simultaneously clear that I'm not denouncing sensuality. So sensuality obviously has to do with the senses and particularly with the pleasure that can be derived from the senses, from taste, from touch, from seeing, and so on. Sensuousness, it's a more integrative word. So when something is sensuous, it involves both the senses and the mind, and you could argue the soul. It was coined by John Milton, and he he was looking for a word uh, that would describe poetry, which was his field of work. And he wasn't satisfied with sensual precisely because it has this connotation with sexuality. And so he coined the, the word sensuous to transcend, as something that was transcendent. But of course, it's a bit of a slippery term. It is used quite often also to connote sexuality, things that are titillating and so on. But it is also used in quite political and radical ways. So I discovered or I was told after the book was published that Karl Marx had a the theory of sensuous knowledge, literally the very same phrase. And you know, I've been familiarizing myself with that a little bit, and it's actually quite a similar type of argument to what I'm making in the book. So yeah, I kind of liked 
the slipperiness of the term because that enabled me to mold it to my own and to not, because what it's trying to contrast is this machine-like rigid binary way of thinking, the either or way of thinking. And so it's useful that the term itself has an openness and a possibility of multiple interpretations. But yes, in terms of the either or versus with and within, this goes back to what I was just saying about how we actually live our lives. And I would say, especially Black women live our lives in this way because we cannot afford not to. Having been excluded from institutions and structures of power that rest upon the either or mentality where there are so many hierarchies of power that you cannot access. I mean, from the simplest things such as getting, you know, a a basic education, which is still something that so many Black women around the world are restricted from, to becoming leaders of nations and things like that. We really cannot step into spaces of either or. And so with and within is the way that we survive, if you like. And when you're talking about that, these notions of kind of moving between, I guess, one state to another, the kind of overlaps and maybe connections there are between sensuous and sensual and the intention behind making a distinction while also inviting some movement. It reminded me of someone like Adrian Marie Brown's work with pleasure activism and Audre Lorde, who you refer to quite often in the book, where kind of claiming that type of space between these two states is in and of itself often a radical act, um, particularly when done by women, particularly Black women, because those states have been so controlled. And so the attempts have been made to order those systems in order to control. So how does this sensuous knowledge connect to breaking down those systems? And then that gets us into the Euro-patriarchal knowledge frame as well. Great. Uh, The intent is not simply to control, perhaps even more gravely, to diminish, to belittle, to make inferior. And yet... We find ourselves, you know, particularly now at a time where, you know, the whole world, due to the coronavirus pandemic and climate emergency and all of these crises that are taking place, is able to see that everything is connected. You know, we live in our structures as much as they may be formed by force into rigid, linear, binary hierarchies, they in themselves are prone to being more entangled, to being reciprocal, for better or for worse, and to really sort of enmeshing themselves with each other. This is basically what we now refer to as intersectionality, but you know, it has been an ongoing conversation for Black feminists and women of color feminists, because this is how our lives are out of necessity, as I just mentioned for the previous question. So this embodied way of knowing, which, you know, once again, does not by any means denounce science or reason. By contrast, I think that in observing the multilayered, patterned way in which life unfolds, that is the observance of sanity of logic, of reason, because that's actually how it is. Whereas the enforcement of people into 
machine-like structures in order to exploit and dominate is actually, you know, a really irrational way of structuring humanity as our current predicaments are revealing because things are collapsing. And so this is the time where, you know, what Black feminists have been saying for decades and probably beyond before, you know, things were documented in written archives. This is the time where it is all proving itself to be true. And my point with saying that is not, you know, to claim ownership. This isn't a competition about who said what. It's about starting to really create worlds and societies in which there is conscientiousness and, again, a kind of logical sanity to our patterns of social relations. And, you know, the Euro-patriarchal knowledge set has framed the world in which we all operate on some level within it, are influenced by it. And what is incredibly, I think, essential to highlight, as you mentioned, at a time when we are faced with multiple crises, fear of imminent collapse across climate systems, as we start to imagine and think about futures that are viable for um, people and planet, how do we break out of a knowledge system that has been at the center of all of these multiple crises? It seems incompatible that a knowledge base that has got us here is going to get us out of here. As we think about this viable futures, how do we put sensuous knowledge and other named systems that are in the same water at the center of these conversations? You know, I think that we're doing that. It's an ongoing thing. You mentioned Adrienne Marie Brown, for instance, whose work I just discovered maybe through your, your podcast. I'm not sure. Yeah, she was a guest on your. And I mean, she's just, you know, she's another voice saying something similar. There is Alexis Pauline Gums, who's written a book called Undrowned. I mean, there's so many people who are now really not just sort of writing about different worlds through fiction or poetry or even nonfiction, but who are sort of naming that we are writing about different worlds. I think one of the sort of both errors and lack of opportunities that we've had in the past is to really claim and assert the work that we are doing. There's something about being in in very politicized environments that, of course, forces writing and theorizing and activism to become really of a sort of presentist, solutionist type of nature. But we're now seeing this real sort of imaginative but named genre of writing by Black women, by people of color, um, by all types of minoritized communities that is emerging. And I think that's going to play a pivotal role in in actually moving away from Europatriarchal systems. But also, and, you know, key is that we have to just know and firmly believe and have faith in that a different reality is possible. One of the things that Europatriarchal knowledge really works hard to do is to keep people in the mindset of there not being other options. That, oh, this is something that is so nestled into every part of life that how can we possibly move away from it? It's too laborious. But the challenge with Europatriarchal knowledge that it is 
constantly trying to educate us and to make people believe that there is no other way possible, that in order to move away from its stronghold and its dominance is going to be so laborious and so treacherous that why even bother? And so we really do have to just know and have faith in that a different reality is possible. It's absolutely not going to be easy, but we basically just have to get on with it. And we have to know that an alternative type of world is not only possible, it will happen if we get on with it. And that's a perfect segue to the next question, which I invoke, again, someone that you mentioned throughout the book, just kind of weaved in through the book, Audre Lorde. And I think there's a whole section kind of dissecting one of her more famous quotes, which is, the master's tools won't dismantle the master's house. And I think it speaks to the illusions of, of systems that, you know, we're in this and we have certain tools, but even what that means invites us to think through it in a different way. And I like in the book how you did that. You mentioned a house and what that means in today's society, the tools that we have. So I want to give you an opportunity to go through the depth of that particular quote and the idea that it means in relation to dismantling these systems and even the illusion of those systems in and of themselves. Yeah, I think that's precisely it. The quote by Audrey Lorde, the master's house will not dismantle the master's tools. I remember the first time I came across that, it just blew my mind like it has done for so many people. And that's, you know, that's why it's so popular. I've seen it used in not only in activism, it's pretty much it's in the book I mentioned that I came across a paper where, you know, somebody was talking about seeds and how they basically were piggybacking off of this quote in order to talk about the commodification of seeds. Yeah. And I just simultaneously have wanted to explore this line more because wherever I've been and wherever we talk about what the master's tools are, there's always this huge question of what are the master's tools? And, you know, to some people, it is the enlightenment movement to some people, which would mean the educational systems that the masters put in place to others. It is attitudes to others. It is weapons. And precisely as you say, and as I was alluding to previously, this is the, the thing that Europatriarchy makes us preoccupied with. How do we defeat it? But also it gives the sense of it being something impossible to transcend. And actually what occurred to me is that the reason that this quote of Audrey Lords is so powerful is because it's actually so much simpler than we make it out to be when you look at the general discourse. The word dismantle means to remove the mantle. So it means to uncloak. And so to dismantle the master's house is to uncloak the master's house, to see it for what it is. And once you do that, then you see that the master's house, for one, it isn't a home. It's something that has to do with commodification, with exploitation. There's no need to have this overwhelming desire to preoccupy ourselves with the master's house. Rather, when you see this, when you dismantle it and remove the mantle, then it starts to become far more interesting to envision a different type of house. And again, this goes to my saying that we need to envision different realities and we need to believe in the possibility of a different world. 
that is dismantling the master's house. When you really just get on with not only seeing, not only doing, but living in a different space to the extent that you possibly can. I mean, there are ways that we cannot help but be complicit in Europatriarchy, in the master's house. But there are also many ways in which we can, each of us collectively, really transform the ways that we live. And, you know, I love this idea of like seeing something for what it is, right? Which is calling a thing a thing, naming a thing a thing, which is both a rational act, but also, I think, an act very much in line with the way in which the book outlines sensuous knowledge is using the way in which we feel and relate to the cultures that we're in to help us better make sense of them, despite the fact of the rational way in which they might be explained to us. And those of us who are often on, you know, what I call the margins of these realities have a, I think, outsized capability of seeing them for what they are, because we've had to understand them quite deeply in order to navigate them. In in my work, what I've often said, both in very serious terms and also jokingly with folks when we're dealing, and again, I'll kind of stick this an American perspective on race and culture, is that by and large, white people know very little about Black people outside of the big things, right? But we know a lot about them, right? Because we've had to navigate the world as they see it. And there's a writer who's incredibly smart and very funny, Michael Harriet, who has a tweet he did months ago where he was like, who's what he called like Black famous? And what he means by that is like, who's someone that Black people know and is like super famous, but like white people have no idea who they are. So it's just kind of a funny way of thinking about the way in which who knows what in relation to who. But I want to segue that little editorial to a notion that you put in in the book that was really very interesting when you were talking about Lauren Hill specifically. And I reference her beyond the artist and the artistry because you connected her to this idea of not her being a clown, but how we treat clowns in as truth tellers in literature, but how today it's a way to diminish to degrade in a lot of ways. And um, what I'm trying to put together, probably in a very imperfect question, is I think in our Black traditions, there's always been this idea of like the trickster, the thing that is not what it appears, but is a vessel of incredible knowledge. And we have had to do that in many ways, again, to survive, you know, act as if in order to go along. We wear the mask and the double consciousness and all the ways in which we've kind of parsed through that. And I thought the clown metaphor was a different way in which I'd seen that idea talked about. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to why that was so meaningful and then kind of connect it, like I said, very much to my imperfect musing on it. That's a great musing on it on so many levels. I was just speaking with someone yesterday and during the conversation, Dennis Rodman came up for me and the person I was speaking to was white and they didn't know who Dennis Rodman was. Uh, (laughs) Even though they would, you know, they would know like the equivalent sort of footballer or something. And, you know, it's, um, yeah, but that really speaks to what you said about knowing who's, who's famous for who kind of thing. And yeah, you know, one of the things about 
writing a book, I've discovered in this my debut book, is how some chapters are were for me more playful than others. And some things you continue to really discover about, even though you are the author of them and you wrote about them, but it's still like, it's just the beginning of the journey in the book. And the clown metaphor is one of those. And what you just said is adding to that kind of compendium of what the clown symbolizes in terms of your connecting the clown to the trickster. In Yoruba, we have a deity called Eshu, who is the trickster god. And as you were speaking, I just thought of how much I was actually evoking Eshu in that chapter, but I don't mention that because I wasn't aware of it myself until now. But yes, the clown is, it's one of those archetypes that I think is really useful in terms of unpacking Europatriarchy because it has such a, like we have such predefined notions of what a clown is. It's, and it's, the clown is so defined by Eurocentric and patriarchal lens. The moment you start to think of the clown through a black lens, through a feminist lens, something different emerges. And that was why, you know, I referred back to Langston Hughes's poem, The Black Clown, and how there's something immediately more poignant and sorrowful when you say the black clown. You understand that there's a role there that's being played that is in resistance, that is being suppressed in some way. Same thing when you say the female clown. You know, the female clown cannot afford to walk around the streets like the white male clown and do things that clown might be able to do. Yeah, because we don't have lots of time, I don't want to get into the full connection between Lauren Hill and that symbol, lest it come across that I am calling her a clown. But there's something in, in her work that it's almost as though she is showing us society through her work in a way that makes listeners and fans sometimes very uncomfortable. And those are the kinds of things that both the Black clown and the female clown, let alone the Black female clown, would do in a kind of archetypical world. Absolutely. And I think for those, when they read the book and they come to that section, they'll know that mentioning Lauren is actually with great, you know, my words, reverence and appreciation and making a very strong connection, which is why it really stuck out to me as a as such an important and essential idea, because it really wrestled with the way in which through these systems, we do diminish women by their appearance, by the things they do. Like it's very easy for us. And I say us because I'm living in it to make women unserious. It's why it really stuck out to me. And I think that was a perfect way to illustrate that with such a incredibly talented and important artist. I have a couple more questions before we get to the final sections of the show. I'm keeping an eye on, on the time as well. And I want to end out on one thing that I noticed, and then we'll get to one other question, which is this notion of kintsugi, which came up in another conversation I had with a prior guest. So I want to give a shout out also to um, Makoto Fujimura, who works a lot in this space. And, and so it's come up in two conversations in not a long amount of time, which tells me that that idea is somewhat important as someone who looks for ideas on the margins, even though it is an old idea. And I wanted you to kind of walk through why this ancient artistic process of kintsugi is so essential to what you saw as the decolonization concept. And then I got one more question. (laughs) (laughs) Great. So kintsugi is... I I believe that you can translate it from Japanese roughly to mean golden repair. 
And basically, it's when something that is fragile, such as glass or pottery, you know, an object that is broken, is fixed with a kind of golden sand, a golden glue. And therefore, according to Kintsugi, it becomes even more beautiful because it has this golden, this gilded repair element to it. And decolonization is in many ways about that for me. I think we cannot undo the past. Colonization has happened. It has had tremendous detrimental results and effects on Black African heritage societies in every part of the world. And a lot of the conversation around decolonization nevertheless implies a kind of undoing and that such an undoing is possible. And I think that has to do with this very innocuous small prefix, D-E, D, which connotes undoing. So we defrost and decaffeinate. And there's so many examples, I'm sure, that I, I can't think of them all now. But, you know, there's always a sense of removing and undoing. But with decolonization, we actually cannot do that. And so Kintsugi is one of the metaphors, the images that my book provides of how we can instead approach it as a repair and as a repair that ought to be beautifying and enriching and nourishing while also acknowledging of the fact that something has been broken. And this idea of making, remaking things beautiful, it also makes them stronger, which I think is an important to to highlight when it comes to that process. And, you know, when it comes to making things beautiful, this is a perfect way to get to the the final questions before the last two segments, which is about identity and joy. And I think we can we could have spent entire show on just this concept because identity is discussed in the book. And I wanted to really parse out the connection to identity and joy and its relationship to political power, because it's not just being in dissent or opposition to the other. It's a it's a different, more complex relationship. And what I'm very aware of is, is these notions of what's called like Black pessimism, that there's no joy in the Black experience because it's often in counter to the, the Europatriarchal systems and knowledge that that you describe so eloquently. So I wanted to give space to kind of talk about how we go back and forth between identity and joy and claiming that joy in our experiences. It's so essential, isn't it, to have to bring in the conversation around joy into blackness, into womanhood. I did a panel last week and there was a, a woman who we were talking about feminisms, you know, women of different backgrounds, and a white participant said, you know, that she would really like to speak more to black women about their experiences, not from a position of guilt, but rather from a position of kind of conscientiousness but that she feels concerned about re-invoking trauma and pain and, you know, those kinds of things. And, and her view was not altogether, you know, offensive. It wasn't even really offensive, but it felt a bit jarring to me because it presumed the victimhood position to merely just bring up a conversation about tensions in the movement to her meant that this doing something painful and hurtful. And so it assumes that just because somebody's black, that they're instantly, they feel victimized. And to feel victimized, of course, means to feel pain, to feel pessimistic, as you said. It's kind of absent of joy. I think the truth is lies somewhere 
in a kind of middle ground. And, you know, for me, certainly writing the book, Sensuous Knowledge kind of feels like a, what you would get if you married joy and rage together, you know? So it's a kind of, I think both in Sensuous Knowledge and, and Black Joy at large, it's a joy that contains an element of rage and our rage insofar as we can speak of anything that is our, you know, and essentialize. I think our rage also contains an element of joy. You know, there's such a, if you look at Black history, there's perhaps more than any group of humanity in our history, there's so much resistance, there's so much survival, there's such a, a resilience somehow. And I don't mean that in the sense of forgiving and turning the other cheek, but rather like real, radical, imaginative resilience. And so rage and joy are things that really coexist. But in our common narrative, in the discourse, there is such an emphasis on the kind of rage part, the pessimistic side, the victim side. And so I really wanted to speak about identity in ways that emphasize that we are not only victims, we are also people of lineages of joy, you could say. Joy is an in incredible organizing principle. I use it all the time. Um, so... <laughs> Like I said, we could have gone on forever and ever, but unfortunately, we don't have that luxury. So I want to get to the final two segments of the show, which are quite pithy and quick, which is Off the Dome and then The Drop. So Off the Dome is, as it sounds, just a few quick questions. First thing that comes to the mind, boom, is going to be the right answer. No pressure at all. Not um, at and, all. I, and I have four of them. So um, you mentioned finding or, or making a room of my own as a quote, what are the most important elements in that room of your own? Oh, books. There's got to be lots and lots of books. Books are, they're sort of companions to me. They're friends. I had a period before lockdown, basically my life consisted of both splitting my time between London and Lagos, but just traveling a lot. And no matter where I'm going, I'm sort of like carrying books that I know I'm very unlikely to even open at my destination, but it's like bringing my friends along on a trip. Okay. My second one, and this might be a similar answer. I hope not. So I'm going to try to, I maybe nudged you into not giving me the same answer. In your work, as you move through your life, what is the one tool slash device that you can't do without? That would have to be solitude. I need space. <laughs> what I call an introverted extrovert or an extrovert, I don't know which way around, but I, I, I'm definitely somebody who um, I require solitude. And in that space of solitude, or the reason why I need that as I move through life is that's where I sort of, you know, I get to know myself. I sort out my thoughts. I make sense of experiences that I'm having. And yeah, I just find it difficult to do that if I'm constantly around if my senses and my mind is constantly stimulated. Third, if you can be in the Guinness Book of World Records for one thing, what would be your world record? I would be the person who came up with the most concepts in one day. <laughs> <laughs> I am constantly like coming up with a concept for something, an idea for something. I'm, I'm a real conceptualist, so I've not put them all down to paper, but I, I'm sure I could do a lot of concepts in one day. <laughs> okay. Breaking the world record for concepts, I'll take it. <laughs> and the final off the dome is just a very quick, complete the sentence. I wish everyone could. I wish everyone could 
live a feminist life? That's a good one. Because that captures a whole lot of things that they could do in that. (laughs) (laughs) That was fun. That was a fun game. (laughs) All right. So we're going to get you out on this, which is the drop. And the drop are these intellectual morsels. That sounds heavier than it needs to be. But it's just something that I want to make our listeners aware of. And drops can be anything at all. I have a drop. I hope you have a drop. Drops don't also have to be one thing. It can be I've been fortunate enough that my guests have given sometimes two, three drops at a time. So I don't want to limit it, but feel free. So I have a drop. You have a drop. Do you want me to go first or do you want to go first? You go first. Okay. My drop is kind of a concept. I'm going to invite our listeners to probably check out a bunch of artists. So it's going to sound like all of the artists are the drop, but it's really like a moment in time that's the drop. That there was a, a moment in hip hop that I really loved as someone who kind of lived and grew up and breathed hip hop, that where there was sort of this acid jazz and kind of a different sound that started to send, maybe it was coming, Europe was coming to us or we were going to them. Can't, not really sure how that happened, but Guru released Jazzmatazz and that introduced me to the, like the brand new heavies and then Jamiroquai and Groove Collective and MC Solar was big. There's just all these different types of movements around that time. This kind of, early to mid nineties. And it was a period that I was like, God, I was so happy back then. And it was just music that was filled with a lot of joy and experimentation. So if you can dig into that moment in hip hop music history, what I'm calling like a brand new heavies moment, I think that would be an interesting drop for people to kind of explore. Nice. That made me want to get on Spotify after this conversation and listen to some some old hip-hop. My drop is a children's book, which is called Milo Imagines the World. And it is written by Matt de la Peña and Christian Robinson, if I remember their names correctly. And I, I spontaneously read it last week. And I haven't quite been able to get it off my mind since. And I think, you know, anyone who's listening that has children in their lives, which is all of us in some way, whether we're parents or not, should get children to read this book and should read the book themselves, even as adults. It's about a little boy in New York, a black boy called Milo. And he's on the subway heading to see his mother who's in prison and he's with his sister. And on the subway, he's looking at everybody in the same carriage and wondering like what their lives are about. And he's kind of making assumptions about who they are based on their appearance. And then he's wondering what kind of assumptions they're making about him. And the kind of moral of the story is that, you know, people's appearances are so misleading, but it's told in a way that is incredibly warming and inspiring and just actually transforming. Yeah, in the past week since I've read it, like I'll see something when I'm out. Oh, that's a beautiful drop. I'm going to do the same thing and check it out as I move through my day. It sounds like the exactly kind of story that we need to remember. And the inspiration comes from all places, all directions. And we push back against those labels. Anyone can read any book. Exactly. There's value to that's be found in all of them. That's also why I wanted to recommend it, because why not read children's books when you're an yeah. adult? <laughs> you know? Absolutely. We have yeah. the color. We do a bunch of other things. So there's a reason why. Mina, I want to thank you so much for being on the deep dive with me. This was an incredible conversation. And, um, I, you know, like I said, we could have gone on forever, but I'm sure we'll have other opportunities to do that. So thanks so much for being on the deep dive. 
I hope so. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure having Mina Salami join me on The Deep Dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.